This is Defender Radio. I'm Michael Howie, and this is Defender Radio, the podcast for wildlife advocates and animal lovers brought to you by the fur bearers. The idea of walking into a flat earth convention, it makes my tummy hurt. But for Dr. Lee McIntyre, it was an exercise in curiosity explored in the introduction of his new book, How to Talk to a Science Denier. Dr. McIntyre is an author, a research fellow at Center for Philosophy and History of Science at Boston University, and an instructor in ethics at Harvard Extension School. An award-winning teacher, McIntyre has penned several popular titles on the philosophy of science and anti-science sentiments and strategies. His latest, published by MIT Press this year, is a dive into science denial in the modern era. How to Talk to a Science Denier combines Dr. McIntyre's own experiences and thoughts with a well-executed explanation of what, somewhat ironically, science and history can tell us about the current state of science denial. The book itself covers subjects ranging from climate denial to conspiracy theory, flat earth to anti-vaxxers, and more. However, as I learned by reading the book and through my conversation with Dr. McIntyre, curiosity, compassion, and disconfirming inquiries will play a far greater role in bringing science to those who deny it than I initially thought. I'd like to start by asking a bit about the the premise for writing this book. Um, you are a philosopher of science. You have an impressive background. You have multiple books. And now you have been how to talk to a science denier. What was the conversation like between you and, and maybe any partners you have or the publisher about this book and why it was important to get out? You know, it's funny. I didn't really have any conversations with anybody else about this being the next book. Um, what happened is I have been a scholar of in the philosophy of science for some years and had written a number of books about um, topics that were related to science denial. In fact, I had just finished one called The Scientific Attitude, mm -hmm. which the premise of the book was that you really need to understand what science is in order to be able to defend it. Yeah. And then as I was out on the road giving uh, talks uh, in support of that book, people kept saying, well, you know, we agree with you. What can we do? What, you know, what should we say to science deniers? And I got to thinking, you know what, there's another book. Uh, and, and plus, I should be out there doing more of that. I shouldn't just be going to these blue bubbles and, you know, having conversations with folks who had read my book and already agreed with it. I should be out there talking to people who disagreed with me mm -hmm. and then uh, write about that. So that, that was really the process. And it's it's a different kind of a book for a philosopher to write. I'll, I'll grant you that. I, I quite enjoyed reading it myself. And as part of my just my research, I tend to read things multiple times. And what I really found is there's two ways to read this book. The first is to just kind of skim through it. And you can look at like everything is nicely organized and you've broken out uh, a, a concept. So there's a nice section on the, I believe it's the five core elements of science mm -hmm. denial, conspiracy theory and all of that which you can kind of sit through and go one at a time, um, or you can read it the whole way through and really delve into the research because you do include a lot of really well thought out explanations of existing research. And I, again, I found it was, it was a nice sort of two track book of, if I want a quick idea, I can grab it, but you can also then sit and really dig in um, to how people think and how people reason and what goes on there. Um, what what goes into the process for you 
for collecting that much different and and again you know academia that much study mm -hmm. and then being able to say all right i'm now going to put this into a book um you know i i never really thought about the, the process in that way it's just the kind of book that i write mm -hmm. where i i want to make sure that i get the research right because i'm an academic yeah but I also want to make sure that it's easy to read and engaging for the general public because I want to reach a larger audience. And so part of that, um, one thing that people comment on in, in the book is that there are 80 pages of footnotes. Mm. So, you know, I, I do want to document, I do want to show that there's some research behind this and, you know, some of the things that uh, um, I don't necessarily want to put in the text, but I'll, I'll put in the footnotes. But I try to put a little humor in the footnotes, too, just to reward the people who are going to go to maybe that third level mm -hmm. and uh, and read the footnotes. So, you know, I'm glad you brought it up the way that you did, because I, I don't write it to be skimmed. I write it to be read. But I do like my books to be organized so that somebody can you know get the main idea if they uh, if they look through it quickly. But I I guess I can't help it. I'm a philosopher. I want the, there's an argumentative structure to the book, mm -hmm. but it should also be a fun read. Uh, what I've learned over my years as a public philosopher is that sometimes people are more convinced by a story than they are by an argument. So if I can just give a good example or tell a good story, and especially in a book like this, where I can tell a story about going to a flat earth convention, yep. people love that kind of stuff. But there's a serious purpose to it, but they love the story. I was absolutely amazed by that introduction and thought, I'd say once a page, I thought well, I would have left just every time, yeah. right? It's, I couldn't imagine being yeah. in that room. Now, granted, I don't have the skills to have the arguments. Um, my background is journalism. And a big part of that for me is recognizing that I have a very little bit of knowledge about an awful lot of different stuff. Um, and the idea of confronting someone without knowing fully all of the information just terrifies me um, because it, mm -hmm. it, it feels like saying, well, I know when you don't. And then they say, OK, what do you know? And they're going, well, stuff. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I did I did feel a little bit of that uh, because there were moments when they would quote something to me from physics mm -hmm. that I knew was wrong. But I didn't know enough physics to be able to tell them precisely where it was wrong. But it didn't matter because even amongst the things where I knew what they got wrong, if I told them they wouldn't accept it anyway. Because the, the bottom line is, as you know from the book, I wasn't there to argue evidence and facts with them mm -hmm. because they already knew all that and had rejected it. I was there to talk about their argumentative strategy and that I felt very well prepared to talk to them about as a philosopher. You know, I can talk about reasoning and logic and conspiracy theories and cherry picking you know, all day that that was fine with me. And so really, it was an attempt to listen to what they had to say about, you know, not only what they believed, but why they believed it. But then I pulled a little bit of a fast one because I think they were expecting me to say, yes, but what about Galileo or, you know, what about, you know, the you know, certain experiments from the history of science? And I didn't do that. What I did was say things like, well, it seems like your view is based on evidence. And they'd say, yes. And, or, you know, of course. And I'd say, well, then tell me this. And they thought I was going to say, what's your evidence? But instead I said, what evidence could I pull out of my back pocket to show that you were wrong? 
Yeah. And they hated that question. They couldn't answer that question because in order to answer that question, you'd have to have a scientific frame of mind. You'd have to be able to say, I'm willing to stake my belief on this thing being true. And if it's not true, then my belief is false. And they would not do that. So, so I had a little bit of, uh, um, even though I was there and it was just me and 650 of them, uh, I wanted to put it on my turf. I didn't yeah. just want to talk about the moon landing and, uh, you know, hull down ships over the horizon and, you know, all of those other things. Yeah. And it's, it's funny. I, um, quick anecdote. I, as I was reading this, I was thinking about that situation of being in a position of arguing with someone about anything and in advocacy work, we're often trying to correct misinformation. Yes. Um, and, and I was thinking about what it's like to be sitting there and trying to engage with someone who has said more or less that they are unwilling to engage but somehow is using engagement to try it, it i don't I, it's, it's almost like going to a bar and being the guy who just says hold me back all the time um never actually getting into a fight or anything uh it it's this weird uh I, i'd almost say posturing and i uh, i've got a bunch of notes that go all over the place but i'm gonna skip ahead to one where you at one point make a link to trauma um and you reference the mm -hmm. language and experience of the people you met at that convention and you know, there isn't a lot of evidence in the psychological literature currently on right. that connection. That's right. So I've got two parts to a question. Uh, one, could you explain a bit more about how those two ideas fit together in your mind? I think that the connection is, I, I understand it to a degree because I've done a fair bit of reading mm -hmm. on trauma and I think it, it does feel natural, that sort of connection you're making. But as a sort of fun, uh, interesting aside, when you begin the process of this kind of speculation without the confirming evidence, yeah. do you have a mantra or an emergency break in mind to prevent yourself from going down that slope of supposition into where the science deniers exist? Yeah, I, I am constantly reminding myself in a situation like that, that I'm not a psychologist and I'm not a physicist either. And so, you know, there are mm -hmm. limits to what I'm able to uh, draw evidence for and make inferences about. I regarded it as something of a sociological fact, a demographic fact, that a number of the people that I spoke to, um, who, by the way, were very willing to talk about their experiences and their beliefs and why they believed it, uh, said that the reason that they got into flat earth was because of some enormous breach of trust in their life. Some of it, sometimes it was a, a physical injury. Sometimes it was an emotional or, or a, you know, psychic injury. Uh, people talked about uh, divorce, um, uh, you know, serious illness, et cetera. Um, a number of people mentioned 9-11 uh, as an event that was so appalling and so overwhelming that they decided on its basis that this couldn't be real and the government must be lying to us. And if they're lying to us about that, what else are they lying to us about? And that's how they got into flat Earth. So I think of um, I think of flat Earth as about distrust, mm -hmm. just profoundly about not it, it's it's that they don't trust the people who are giving the information. That's why the information doesn't convince them. Yeah, because you can overcome doubt with evidence. You can't overcome distrust with evidence because you don't 
trust the person. Now, showing up in person to try to engage them, I was trying to build some trust. But this, this question of trauma kept coming back in a way that was kind of fascinating because I hadn't expected it. And I've since learned of the work of a um, psychologist down at uh, Texas Tech named Ashley Landrum, who's done some studies on flat earthers and is now currently writing a book on flat earthers. And so she, uh, and we've never spoken about that particular subject that we've spoken about flat earthers, but not about the trauma hypothesis, but I'll be interested to see what she uh, does with this because you know she is qualified to uh, have a whole picture uh, of them. And, and my job was not to paint a, an entire psychological portrait of them, but I have to say by being there I, and just paying attention, I did notice certain uh, themes. And there's a, a bit of discussion about the role social media plays in all of this in the book. And I think anyone who spends any amount of time on social media uh, will very quickly realize that giving everyone on the planet anonymous voices and platforms may not have been the best idea. Yeah. But we're yeah. here now. Um, and it, I, I think it's, it's sort of an interesting, how do we deal with that? Um, but I had a more specific question, and that's talking about uh, the the ego aspect of this. So um, I'm trying to find the note on this specific, here it is, uh, Peter Bogossian, which I probably, Bogossian, I probably said wrong, and James Lindsay. Um, in How to Have Impossible Conversations, you know, they suggest avoiding facts, not, sorry, avoid just using facts, and instead ask disconfirming questions, as you've noted, like what facts or evidence would change your mind? And in your, uh, your book, you actually almost get to a flipped flat earther. Uh, you come very, very close by using that tactic. And it was, it, it was, it read like the best John Grisham for me, just so you know, that just reading that conversation in the progressions, it, it was oh, exciting. Good. Uh, it's nice. So we're, we're finding that a lot of this is maybe not about evidence, but about identity. Um, as traditional media goes more and more political yes. and social media does what it does, are these tools that we can use, again, depending on who we are as advocates of, of fact, um, to challenge people whose identities are that tied up um, to the point of dismissing clear evidence, or is it always going to exist as a hindrance to that effort, do you think? It's, it's hard because, as you rightly point out, it is about identity, which mm -hmm. means that, as I think I said in the book, so when you challenge their beliefs, you're challenging who they are as a person. And, and in a way, that's a much harder task, isn't it? Because if you just yeah. show a scientist the evidence, they change their belief, you know, it, it's done. But it, to change somebody's identity, that is a much harder thing to do because it, it's, it's nested in all of maybe what got them into it and their search for community and for belonging and meaning. And, and how do you do that? And so it, it, it is a puzzle and it is very difficult. The, the really weird thing is that People have found community in social media and even in major media, mm -hmm. just in, in virtue of finding other people who agree with them or to tell them that they're smart. You talked about ego a minute ago. Nobody wants to feel like they've been duped or that you know, they don't know the answer. And mm -hmm. so when deniers are isolated from one another, maybe they're more vulnerable to persuasion, but when they're together, either in, you know, physically, like at the uh, Flat Earth International Conference, or on social media, it's much harder to pry them apart, because there is 
a sort of a tribal aspect to belief, even if it's about empirical subjects. And in fact, I'll go one better. In some ways, it isn't even about the subject. It's about the identity of the people who believe what you believe. And I, and I say that because there are remarkable things in the literature where you will find, I'll, I'll just give you one from, from popular media. I don't know if you remember the, the photograph of these two gentlemen at a Trump rally wearing a t-shirt wearing t-shirts that said i'd rather be a russian than a democrat yeah think about the 180 that the gop had to turn to make being russian preferable to being a democrat yeah. but that's okay because it's it's not ideology it's identity right it it, it it worked for them uh in a way so it is it is a very difficult thing facts have a role but if you just go in with what's called the information deficit model, you know, mm -hmm. oh, they just need to know what the facts are. And if they don't walk away, they're not worth talking to. That's a huge mistake. Yeah, and I found that really interesting, too, because I, again, frequently um, when I'm managing social media related stuff, I get so fed up <laughs> and I just don't want to. I, I want to take my ball and go home. Um, yeah. And it it's in part, I think, for me. If someone gives me evidence, I'm going to sit and I'm going to look at that evidence. I'm going to ask questions about that evidence, and then I'll catalog it in my brain with everything else I have. And if it makes sense, it makes sense. You know, like if you said to me, hey, uh, just so you know, the sky is now purple. Um, you know, you, you are an intelligent person. I'll say, oh, that's interesting. Then I'm going to look outside. And if the sky is purple, I'm going to go, oh, well, that's new. But if I look outside and the sky is blue, okay, now I need to ask some more questions right. about this. But um, when we start dealing with these very uh, broad subjects such as gravity, and, and I found this amusing, uh, as, re as I was reading, I, I thought, well, could I defend science in any way as a non-scientist? Uh, and I went to YouTube and I searched, um, you know, gravity experiments for high school students. Because I thought this is something we must clear, like by this point, with all of the genius yes. people in the world, we got to be able to show this somehow. Um, and I watched a couple of YouTube videos and then I felt kind of dumb. And I guess, is, is there a, a, a Dunning-Kruger element to this of, <laughs> I don't understand it. And I then sort of, to a degree, have to go on belief. Um, you, you, you put your finger on a very important thing there. Mm -hmm. Number one, it is extremely hard to come up with definitive firsthand what you've got in your pockets right this minute evidence to prove that the earth is not flat. And that's what they demand. They demand proof. And science is not about proof. Science is about the you know, preponderance of the evidence, which, you know, as a scientist, you understand if the evidence racks up to a certain point, like for climate change, uh, then you should believe it, but always hold out the possibility that future evidence might overthrow it. That's just how science uh, how science works. So, you know, the, the, the problem is that they're insisting on proof, but you cannot offer proof. Mm -hmm. And then, and I think, and there's a little bit more psychologizing. I think that one thing that happens is that people watch Flat Earth videos on YouTube uh, that are trying to convince them that flat earth is true, not the kind that you watched, right, to see how can I debunk these people, but the yeah. kind that make the argument that flat earth is true. And if they can't figure out what's wrong with them, then it must be true. 
Hmm. Like they give themselves so much credit or they'll say, well, you know, I flunked out of physics freshman year, but I can't figure out what's wrong here. So it must be true. Now I've slandered them in saying that, and I'm not supposed to do that. But the, but the problem is you know, in science, if you make a mistake, somebody else will catch you. You know, yeah. you, you don't give that much credence to your own, you know, gut or your own instincts, because if you get something wrong, you will be corrected quite sharply. And that's an embarrassing thing. But I think that for a number of people who watch the Flat Earth videos and get sucked in by them, they have such an enormously high regard for their own capacity to reason that they think, well, I can't see anything wrong with it. So yes, it must be true, which raises a very important point. They often describe themselves as skeptics. They are not. They're gullible. They're skeptics about the things that they want to be skeptical about. They'll demand proof if it's something that they don't want to believe. But if it's something they do want to believe, they hardly need any evidence at all. So the, the areas where science deniers are really deficient in their reasoning about scientific topics is not the skepticism. They've got that down. It's yeah. when they need to be able to say, okay, if this were true, you know, this experiment, this crucial experiment, then I would give up my belief and you know, I'll, I'll change my to something else. They don't understand that because what they believe is really not based on evidence. It's really based, as we've said, on identity, on, you know, this sense of um, this makes them feel whole in a way. It's motivated reasoning, all of these other things that you can come up with from cognitive psychology that it just, it feels right to them. And they had, you know, Dunning-Kruger effect. They have way too much confidence in their yeah. own intuition. And that's, by the way, the beautiful thing about science. Because if you'd make one of those mistakes, you will get slapped back by your colleagues. And that's how we learn from nature. Mm -hmm. Well, and interestingly, you, you, of course, I don't know how you could write a book like this without bringing it up. Uh, Andrew Wakefield yes. um, gets, gets brought up in this. And, and for those unaware, he is the one who created a study i believe he he kind of you know sat down with his notebook in a dark corner and said what are good numbers um that might be an oversimplification but effectively fabricated evidence yes. screwed around with a study to make a connection a causal link between vaccines and autism his co-authors immediately pull out uh once it's published everyone in the scientific community says nope it doesn't work the numbers are wrong later comes out that he did fabricate evidence That's right uh journal sends out a thing he has his license revoked um like the entire scientific community effectively said he's what you're not supposed to do and he's not allowed to play anymore and as such he's now touring i believe still talking about this oh he's and, a celebrity uh, He's a yeah. he's an absolute celebrity at anti-vax conferences. I, I I guess it's I don't know what the question is there. I'm just stunned. Um, and, and I'll tell you, as someone who has uh, immunocompromised people in their life, uh, and I've got a, a horrifying story involving measles. I'll tell you off the air if you're interested. But um, it 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 just baffles me. It truly truly does. Um, and it becomes hard then, as I said to. It, it, interestingly remain reasonable with people mm -hmm. um do you have tools you use to 
tap down, you know, whether it be anger or, or yeah. just the, the urge to just laugh sometimes in these situations. Yeah. I mean, you seem very stoic right now. I am clearly not stoic. <laughs> um, well, how do you manage that element of it? I, I guess I'm, I'm always curious about why they believe what they believe. And just stubborn enough as a philosopher that I think if I talk to them long enough, maybe I could talk them out of it. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't, I don't um, quite have the, well, I just need to get out of here reaction. It's more now, wait a minute, let's pull up the chair and really, you know, go over this. I just want to, you know, keep hammering away at it. There's one thing that really, and I mean, the inconsistencies like you bring up really bother me. Why do they trust Andrew Wakefield, but they won't trust someone else? You know, if they're such distrustful people, again, it's selective. It's cafeteria yeah. skepticism. They don't trust this, but they do trust that. And, you know, it's it's based on what they what they want to believe. There's one really important thing that keeps me going in this. And it's the idea that science deniers, for the most of them, are victims mm -hmm. um, because it's really important to remember that science denial is not a mistake, it's a lie. They didn't just wake up one day, you know, a, a hundred thousand people and say, you know, I wonder if we really went to the moon or, you know, mm -hmm. I wonder if there's a link between that and the MMR vaccine and autism or what. This didn't just happen to occur to all these people at the same time. Denial is created. And it's created by people who have an interest at stake in misleading us. So that means that it's not misinformation, it's disinformation. Uh, it started with the tobacco companies who decided that they didn't want to believe that cigarette smoking caused lung cancer. And so they hired a public relations expert to help them to get that message out. It then went on to climate change, where the fossil fuel companies were horrified by the idea that um, climate change was real, even though their own scientists had told them that it was real, yep. which enabled them to make projections about drilling in the Arctic once the polar ice cap had melted. I mean, so talk about cynical. They knew that. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, the, these are people who have interests at stake. And how much better, if you've got an interest at stake, to create an army of people who are on your side. They don't need to prove what they think. They just need there to be enough doubt and confusion, okay? That gives me some empathy for science deniers because the vast majority of climate deniers don't get a cent out of it. You know, yeah. they, they, they're, you know, it, 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 what really bothers me is that they're conspiracy theorists and they don't see a real conspiracy right in front of their eyes. When they're when they're being duped, I start the book with a um, quotation from uh, Mark Twain, attributed. Who knows if he actually said it? Um, that it's easier to fool people than to convince them that they've been fooled. You know yep. how how do you tell somebody no no no? Don't you understand where the dark money is that you know created the disinformation that you're now spouting back to me? Um, it, it's uh, it, it's it's difficult. So that. Um, that keeps me going. Yeah, I, I, the flip side of that, and I've got two questions related to this. One, I had already written about the, the cigarette smoking, which I, I am so glad you included because I think it is a fascinating example. Mm -hmm. And again, pointing to real life conspiracies are a thing. This isn't denying conspiracies. Right. It's denying conspiracy theories with no evidence. Correct. Yeah, that's right. No evidence. Um, so I've 
now forgotten the first question, so we'll skip to the second one. Um, in talking about the cigarette smoking and PR link, which was, uh, again, I just love reading different angles on and different considerations about, I'm old enough to remember a time when I'd go to the shopping mall and there was a smoking section. Um, you know, all cars shipped with multiple ashtrays uh, and lighters. And even in non-smoking homes like mine growing up, there were ashtrays for when people who smoked visits. At some point, right, like a gen- like now there's a generation of people who may not ever believe that was real. And they've only ever known tobacco to be unhealthy, highly taxed in Canada. Um, the package is just covered with warnings now. Very little actual marketing space. Um, so how what how do we learn from that scenario where there was a very, very influential and wealthy lobby effort to create disinformation in the public that lasted generations and is still being managed. There's still people who smoke. There's still kids who are starting to smoke. That's right. But we have come a significant way in that regard. Um, What works is to expose the tactics. Um, They were, now I say that understanding that, you know, it it took decades to, to leak the tobacco memos. Yeah, where they, they finally figured out there was one that said doubt is our product. <laughs> yes, you know, and, and that comes out and it's a scandal. Well, the cigarette companies ultimately paid a multi-million dollar uh, a settlement 30 years later on the theory that, OK, everybody now knows that it's dangerous. Let us go ahead and keep selling our cigarettes. Um, you know, so so there's a um, there's a financial interest for them to, you know, to create this uh, this sort of doubt. Um, how in, with climate change, the memos leaked much earlier, but it mm-hmm. didn't make very much of a difference, right? So you, you raise a good question, right? If you, how, how can you put the evidence right in front of people's face to say, these people are duping you, this, you know, this is what they're, they're doing, and they don't believe it. Contemporary example, COVID denial. Mm-hmm. COVID denial before our very eyes. I mean, as a, as a scholar in this area, I was mesmerized watching every day as this topic that really could have gone either way was spun politically. Uh, and, you know, po- we were polarized and made into this science denial uh, topic. And, and it, it was just, it, it was horrifying to watch. But here we are. The bad news is that disinformation convinces people. Once disinformation is loose, it will do damage. There's some scientific evidence that you can mitigate that damage. And I talk about that in the book, but what, But there will inevitably be damage once disinformation is out there. And that's why it's important to talk to science deniers to keep them from further spreading the disinformation. But it's also important to realize, and this is something I don't say very much about in in the book, though I'm thinking about it more now, um, we have to figure out how to stop the creation and amplification of disinformation, because there are really not that many people doing it. Um, There was was an article in NPR the other day, um, reported by NPR, that 65% 65% of the anti-vax propaganda on Twitter was due to 12 people. Yes. Now they they can do an enormous 12 people can do an enormous amount of damage. 
because disinformation is just you know so virulent. So I, I think that gives us some hope that you know if we could ever figure out in the United States at least how to um, you know think about how to not give a platform to liars without having everybody reflexively say, oh, you're hurting their free speech rights, mm -hmm. you know, to, to have a serious conversation about that and figure out what we should really do. I, I, I think we could do that. We're clearly not there yet. Yeah, I, uh, I was remembering in, uh, I just pulled up my copy to look at this uh, statement and you, uh, this was a reference from Conspiracy Theory Handbooks, uh, Stefan Lewandowski and John Cook um talking about reddit an analysis of over 2 million comments on the subreddit site our conspiracy found only 5% of posters exhibited conspiratorial thinking they were responsible for 64% of all comments and the most active author wrote 896,337 words twice the length of the lord of the rings trilogy so that's one of those one guy yeah one guy and i twice the lord of the rings it's in, it's impressive I and i wanted to put this in context for myself as i said i was a newspaper reporter for a long time i and i just pulled up some rough numbers figure okay i would write an average of two 500 word articles per week and it was a weekly paper it would have taken me 10 full years of doing that 50 times a week and i would still be a hundred thousand words less than this person okay. created as a professional writer and content creator, I could not produce as much. Uh, and that was a yeah. very staggering realization for me of how much time and effort gets put in. But then also, I believe it was related to climate change. Um, a percentage of them were just created by bots too. That, that is, that's true. That's true. There are, and, and don't forget that uh, it's not, I mean, we, we talk about it being, you know, one person, and in some cases, it's one person or a dozen people. But in in other ways, the, in, in, regarding not just the creation but the amplification of these messages, there are troll farms in in Russia, mm -hmm. where you know entire towns that are taken over with people who are pumping this stuff out there to try to, I don't know, confuse us, polarize us. There was a terrific article in the New York Times a few years back called uh, Putin's Long War Against American Science, hmm. where it's just laid out that on GMOs, on vaccines, on climate, uh, they're messing with us on purpose, you know, to, to try to, I don't know, uh, create dissension, uh, dissent in the uh, in the society to try to get us fighting with one another. It's um, I mean, people sometimes ask, why is there so much science denial in the United States? It's because we're being targeted. Yeah. You know, we're the subject of these disinformation campaigns that, uh, you know, along existing fault lines of red and blue America that have now gotten to the point of uh, what sometimes feels like near civil war. Yeah, it's it is. And again, watching that from north of the border is terrifying. <laughs> it guess. really, really is. And it, effect, it, is. it even happens here, though. We end up with protests of, you know, anti-vaxxers and Trump supporters. It's it, You can't even In vote Canada. for the guy. Why, why, why are you yeah. protesting for him? And again, you, you brought up Russia earlier and why it's such a big deal that Americans are more they are willing to say, I trust Russia more than Democrats. And for those yes. who who may not know in Canada and elsewhere in the world or a younger generation, America was kind of at a non-war war with Russia since around 1946. 
um, like there, there's entire texts and university programs about the Cold War and how Russia was the ideological enemy of America. I mean, just watch any 80s action movie and the bad guys are the Russians, right? right? That's why. Uh, so for an entire society or a percentage of that society to go, oh, no, we believe them more to me is very, very surprising and terrifying. Um, and we're working on a wall of our own now. But um, <laughs> and, and not to mention the fact that the, the primary um, uh, progenitors of that anti-Russia message uh, were Republicans. Yes. Uh, in, through the, the 50s, the Red Scare. Yep. Uh, they, they were the, the people who were the tip of the spear anti-Russia mm -hmm. uh, and now uh, not. Yeah, it's it's it is. It is the best argument for why we need more history lessons in schools, in my opinion, more social sciences, uh, because, again, it's if you just look at history, it's like, oh, there it is happening before. Nice. Uh, I, 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 we've, I've used a lot of your time. I'm going to try and wrap up with two questions. Um, one of them is about anecdotes, and this is something that I come up a lot against as an advocate and as a communicator. And I'll, I'll use coyotes as an example, uh, and I'm not expecting you to know a lot about coyotes or biology or any of those things. But in general, the current evidence is that when we try and cull coyotes, we end up with more coyotes. Um, there's, there's a lot of different reasons for it around resources and so on and social structure, but pretty collectively, everyone involved with the science agrees to that. I will have people on social media say things like, well... I saw a coyote when I was younger take down, you know, a, a Buick, or I saw a coyote lure all of the dogs out to the pasture where 20 more were waiting with handguns. Uh, I'm being a little hyperbolic for my own amusement, but they tend to be, you know, anecdotal things where I understand from that perspective, it may look like this is the thing that happened, but you're denying cognition and behavioral science and resources and all of these other factors because the coyote luring your off-leash dog away from your home in the middle of the night is potentially more palatable than your dog, who was off-leash in the middle of the night, went for a wander and found a coyote. Uh, is there a, a, a you know, million-dollar question, is there an easy or straightforward way to say the flaw is not in your perception, the flaw is in your reasoning of applying that perception to reality? That's a hard question because you notice that the two different ways that you framed that were two different narratives. Mm -hmm. And one of the um, hallmarks of you know, what we think of as post-truth is that there are competing narratives, alternative facts, if you will, yeah. different ways of looking at the same situation. Now, so, uh, people rebel against that. And I think rightly so to say, no, there's, you know, there, there's, a right and a wrong way to uh, to look at it. Mm -hmm. I think of post-truth as the political subordination of reality, where you know you want to frame the thing that's happening um, as subordinate to the political outcome that you wish were happening. The coyote example reminds me very much of the way that people talk about crime. Mm -hmm. You know, th there are various ways to spin. Um, uh, conversations about crime to make you think that crime is going up when it's not actually going up. There was a famous uh, uh, bit of video footage in which um, I believe it was uh, uh, 
Rudy, or no, it was Newt Gingrich who was ha having a, an on-air exchange with Alice Camerata from CNN, talking about how people felt that the crime went rate was going up. And yeah. she was saying, no, no, that it actually wasn't. He said, well, you know, you can go with what the statistics are, I'll go with how people feel. That's the problem, right? That there are facts and there is truth. Mm -hmm. And there can be different ways of describing it, but some sometimes facts overturn the narratives. You know, sometimes people say various things in their narrative that are not borne out by the facts. And so those narratives are false. When we stop caring about that, when we stop, when we start saying, well, yes, but I feel that that's a more accurate depiction of reality, even though it's not, that's when we're in big trouble. Well, because that's when um, that's when we reach the point where no amount of evidence will do. Think about an anti-vaxxer. What evidence would you have to offer that would convince them that vaccines were safe? Because you can't prove it. Yeah. Science cannot prove science can't prove that aspirin is safe. Mm -hmm. I mean, and yet people get into airplanes, they drive cars, they they smoke, they do all sorts of things that aren't safe and don't give a second thought about it. But for vaccines, oh, you know, that taps something in their brain that says, you know, unsafe, unsafe, maybe because of the government or pharmaceutical companies or whatever it is. It's a it's a problem. I mean, so so yes, the way that we frame uh, the way that we frame something can uh, give the narrative about it can make a big difference. That's that's really great advice. <clears throat> Excuse me. I have an exercise I like to do in uh, I, I'll do webinars and seminars on media sensationalism and wildlife, and I will often say, let's take this article and then just pull the actual facts. So remove mm -hmm. all interpretation. And what do we know actually happened? And it tends to be three points for, a, you know, a quarter page article, because the rest of it is then, you know, expert opinion or the description of how terrified someone was for three paragraphs, That's which, right. again, as a journalist, I know, causes someone else to feel that fear. And as soon as they feel that fear, they are experiencing that fear and their brain can't make a difference between experiencing it and feeling it uh, that, you know, it's the whole concept of PTSD that your brain is just switched back to being in that moment. That's and and I look, I, I've got a mundane example of this. Mm -hmm. I own two German shepherds. Mm -hmm. and when I'm out walking them, uh, people cross the street. Oh, yeah, because they're German shepherds. And God forbid, if they would bark or, you know, tug at the leash a little bit, then it's, you know, well, that is a dangerous dog. I remember one thing, an obligation when you have a German Shepherd is you have to have them well trained. Mm. Because as my trainer put it, it doesn't matter whose fault it is. After the encounter, you're the one standing there holding the leash for the big bad German Shepherd. Yep. So perceptions, narratives can make a big difference, even if it wasn't my dog's fault, even if the runner was running straight at me, or even if the other person's dog got off, got off leash and attacked my dog, still my fault. Yeah. So that which is why you have to, to do the training. So I understand. Yeah. And that's I, I as we were discussing before the podcast, I also have a, uh, a shepherd mix and my past dogs have also been big black and tan dogs. Yeah. Um, and as goofy and silly as I am, I am six foot, 215 pounds, have a big beard and a big voice. 
uh, there are numerous times I have gotten into confrontations that I walked away from after making a, you know, a really smarmy, witty response to something. And I know I can walk away from it because I'm a big white guy, even though I'm completely nonviolent. And if you, you know, blow at me, I'll fall down crying. Just that perception in the moment. Mm-hmm. is enough to buy me 30 seconds of getaway time. Um, yeah. So it's it's interesting how that, that perception seeps into everything, including privilege. Um, yes, it's true. And to wrap up, I want to talk about hope. You had mentioned mm-hmm. that knowing that you can make a bit of a difference is something that drives you and knowing that the issue is still there. I think as I read the book, it felt overwhelming to me at times. Mm-hmm. You know, we talk about the scope of these problems. We talk about the realities of having people who truly fight back against the concept of climate change, which as you know, you note in the book and now with even more recent information uh, is getting more and more and more certain according to science. Um, Talking about, you know, uh, we all saw what happened on January 6th this year uh, at the election. It's there are real consequences to some of this. And it's again, it's frightening, just plain and simple. In the face of that and in the face of, you know, realizing these tech companies aren't doing a lot and governments are encouraging it, how do you maintain hope that reason can prevail in modern society? Reason has overcome the odds time and again. Mm-hmm. The, the dark ages were 600, 700 years long, but we came out of it. I mean, people when people care enough, but because that's really what it comes down to. It's not the facts, it's the caring. Mm-hmm. But part, part of my mission is not just to change the mind of the science deniers, it's to change the mind of the general public that they can do something about yep. science denial because they tend to think that they can't. So part of the point of my book is, what, are you going to be a science denier? Because there is science which shows that you can change a science denier's mind. And if you're just going to walk away and say, nope, not for me, you're kind of in a way being a science denier. Mm -hmm. I I would like to create an army of people who were allies of science, who understood the techniques for pushing back and who cared enough to to actually do it. I think that we could um, make some headway with the science deniers themselves, not through confrontation, but through engagement through patience and calm and respect, understanding that in some ways they're, they're victims. I think that we could really have a, um, you know, take some, some of the polarity out of the polarization that's happened in, in the last few years, okay? But I think that also we could have an enormous political impact. Um, when you look at the uh, current crises that you know, motivate people to vote, even as bad as climate change has gotten, it's very rarely in any poll that I see does it come in anything above third or fourth. Mm-hmm. You know, pe- people are more concerned about other things. If we actually cared about it more, if we had more people who were, you know, awake to this, who cared as much about science as the science deniers care about whatever their issue is, I think that we could uh, have an effect on government, on policy, and uh, and make more of a difference. It is really um, part part of the lesson that I learned in writing this book is that science denial is not just about facts, it's about caring. It's about what are you concerned with? You know, what do you care enough about to, to want to make a difference? The, the pivotal conversation there that I had was with 
uh, coal miners in rural yeah. Pennsylvania, who one assumes would be climate deniers, but they weren't. They, they believed in climate change and yet still went down to the mines every day. Mm -hmm. So, and it wasn't that they didn't care because some of them were grandfathers. I mean, they did care. They expressed to me their concern. The problem was that they didn't have any choice. Yeah. So it's this question of, again, I come back to the question of victimhood. The people in the Maldives are the victims of the rest of our decisions about climate change. The people who are working in the coal industry, who are not you know, at the top, the ones pulling the strings with the dark money, are also uh, victims. There are an awful lot of people who are hurt by science denial, who are not speaking up. And one thing I'm doing in the book is giving them the means to say, you know what, I can speak up and here's what I can say. And here was his experience. And here's the empirical backup. And here's 80 pages of footnotes. Mm -hmm. It's going to tell me you know, where I can get more information. I want it to be a handbook to help people understand that they too can do this. I, I went to a flat earth convention with 650 flat earthers. You can talk to your cousin about vaccines. It's really possible to do. And, and it's, it's beautifully said. I just can't help but think there's going to be a, like a meme going out tomorrow of McIntyre forms army of coyotes to eat anti-vaxxers <laughs> or something now, because that's just the way it goes, it seems. It's why you need to be calm and, and patient, right? Um, uh, because the minute I lose my temper, the minute yeah. I tell somebody off, you know, or say, well, that's just ridiculous, even, you know, or, or, or insult them with the camera going, uh, I've, I've lost credibility in this debate. Absolutely. And the thing is, as much as I wanted to debunk the flat earthers when I was speaking with them, mm -hmm. I didn't dislike them. I didn't feel angry. Uh, you know, I, I was fascinated and kind of, uh, you know, put off sometimes. There was one moment when I did feel angry, uh, which I dealt with by leaving. Uh, yep. And that was when they were talking about how to recruit children. Yes. Flat Earth. Yeah, that, that was hard to read. That did make me angry because I'm a dad. And my feeling was these kids don't have a chance. The adults, you know, they they change their mind. They could change it back. But the kids, they were being indoctrinated in this. That that did make me mad. Yeah. And I guess then uh, I'm going to lie and give you one more quick question. Is there a way for us to then avoid the flip side of that, wherein, you know, and I made a joke about it, of they're going to pluck four keywords from this entire conversation and come up with a storyline. Is there a way to avoid that same flip side of, well, look, uh, you know, McIntyre went on this podcast and talked with an animal guy. Therefore, you know, everything that guy said, McIntyre now agrees with, and they're on the same side and there's funding questions and all of this. People, what have you dragged me into? Um, <laughs> people, will, um, people will say what they're going to say they will come to whatever conclusions they are going to come to i get mail which you know points out uh every flaw i've ever made and most yep. of the ones i haven't made and there's really not a lot that you can do about it um i think that sometimes that kind of thing is intended to stop me mm -hmm. and it's not going to stop me because i care about this issue too much it it bothers me when you know when i was a, when i was a kid I was fascinated with the World Book Encyclopedia. Yeah. I used to read about the scientists and the philosophers and the writers and think, 
you know, look at all these great people in history who stood up for science and reason. I was born too late. You know, <laughs> all of these battles, you know, Galileo, my great hero, you know, on my office wall, you know, picture. I'm I'm too late. You know, who who's the enlight, you know, the dark ages are over, the enlightenment has happened, all the science and technology. Oh well. Well, yeah. here we are. You know, here here we are because human um intransigence and ignorance is evergreen and mm -hmm. there we do need to fight back we you know we do need to figure out what's behind this the internet has increased the stakes it has made it you know very difficult because um the disinformation the thing that presses the fear button is much more likely to be believed and you know to get spread around than the you know take it down a notch you know let's have a rational conversation yeah. about this but um like i said this is why i care about it so much because my perception is that this problem is getting worse over time and that um i think that the in fact that the political situation in washington dc right now grew out of 60 years of unchecked science denial i think that the politicians looked at what had happened with tobacco and climate change and said wow we can do that for crime. We can do that for who won the election. Yeah. We can do that with, you know, whether they're, uh, uh, they were peaceful protesters on January 6th or not. Uh, that's when it metastasizes. That's when it's not just about money in the pockets of some executives. That's when it gets scary because then things like QAnon and other uh, conspiracies begin to take over. It's taken over, uh, not QAnon, but this, this kind of cult of Trump has taken over one of the two uh, main political parties in the United States. Um, there was a government in Italy that was anti-vax uh, for a while. I mean, science and, and look what Bolsonaro is doing down in, in Brazil. Yeah. Science denial has now reached the highest levels of government and it is morphing into reality denial about things that we should really care about. Not just and not just climate change. I'm talking about truth and facts in general. To find out more about Dr. Lee McIntyre and how to talk to a science denier published by MIT Press this year, visit leemcintyrebooks.com. Links are available in this week's show notes at defenderradio.com or in your podcast app. I want to deeply thank Dr. McIntyre for sharing his time with me. I genuinely could have kept this conversation going for hours. I strongly recommend checking out How to Talk to a Science Denier at your local library or bookstore. I'm already adjusting my thought process on how I engage on certain subjects as a result of reading this book. I also want to thank you for listening. Please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You'll get notified of new episodes of Defender Radio and The Switch as soon as they drop. Please also consider leaving a rating or review where you listen or on the Defender Radio Facebook page, as this also helps new listeners find the show and increases our reach. You can follow me on TikTok and Instagram at Howie Michael, where I'm posting questions about upcoming interviews, giveaways, and getting your feedback. You can find The Fur Bearers on Instagram and Twitter at FurBearers and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash FurFree. Until next time, I'm Michael Howie for Defender Radio and The Fur Bearers reminding you to be kind and to stay informed and stay strong. Stay strong.